Hello everyone and welcome to episode 20 of the Switch Focus podcast. I'm your host Andy Corrigan and with me is Al Girl Ginny Woo and Voxel King Andrew Brown. How are you guys? Yeah, everything's been fine. Great, now that Bayonetta's out, much better. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Abdicating, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. I believe you went to see Black Panther, how was that? Pretty dang great. I have done nothing much but gaming, so let's uh, get straight on to updates from last week. Nerd. So, so uh, Andrew, you've been playing more Dragon Quest Builders? Yeah, I finished that Wednesday night or Tuesday night. I finished it. How was it? <laughs> I said several times now that it was one of my favorite games of 2016. That remains so... Uh, Usually when I replay a game like that, I notice flaws or things I didn't like become more pronounced and I like the game less. That didn't happen here. I actually liked it even better this time because I knew more what I was doing, so I wasn't stumbling as much in the first couple chapters on what I was expected to do as far as building things, so I enjoyed it a lot more this time around. Yeah, now that I've finished... Uh, the game. I'm focusing a lot more on the challenges and the Terra Incognita because the Terra Incognita is the sandbox mode that you unlock when you finish chapter one. But the more you finish in chapters two, three, and four, the more stuff you unlock to do there. Like the you unlock extra islands that have new resources you can use to make cooler things on your main island. And there are also challenges in the four chapters that you have to complete. Like in the first chapter, you have to find and kill three dragons. If you complete those challenges, you get even more stuff to use in Terra Incognita. Uh, I wanted to do this stuff on PlayStation 4, but just the nature of being saddled to a TV to do it just kind of prevented me from getting it done when there was other things I would rather be doing. So, But now that I can play it portably on the Switch, I'm actually getting those things done just on brief sessions on the bus or in the bathroom or wherever. And I mention all this because we've just learned in this past week that there is going to be data carryover to Dragon Quest Builders 2. They haven't said what it's going to be, but I would lay odds that your unlocks for Terra Incognita from Dragon Quest Builders 1 will carry over, if not your entire Terra Incognita island. So I would definitely spend time with that and not just ignore it. Okay, so I need to play this then. <laughs> Rats. Uh, I uh, finished Celeste this week. Yay, congrats. Huzzah. Uh, and I'm just amazed to think that I wasn't going to bother with it at all. Um, what a shame that would have been, because I think it's one of my favourite indies ever. Uh, if it had dropped last year, it probably would have been in my top three pretty easily. Um, when I wasn't going to bother with it, it was because it was um, a bit like Super Meat Boy in style, and I didn't think I'd, I'd find that fun. Uh, but then when people started to talk about the story, that's what got me. Because, uh, I mean, I hadn't even considered that a game like this would have a decent story. Uh, and it's utterly fantastic in in both areas, really. So I think I said last week I could tell in Chapter 2 kind of where the story was going, and I was pretty much on the money. Uh, mm. And it was every bit as good as I'd hoped. What I will say is that while it's very challenging, the difficulty has definitely been overstated on this game. Yeah, it has. Like, it's, it's, it's well balanced in terms of challenge, and it does challenge... Um, but all it takes to beat one of the screens is just persistence and experimentation and just make sure you use all the tools that it gives you. 
and the desire to experiment is obviously fueled by the instant restart whenever you die. It doesn't give you time to get frustrated, which is great. Uh, I've wanted to echo what Ginny said last week about the controls. They're like super tactile, very responsive, and it sort of helps dissuade that sense of frustration because every death feels like it's your fault because I either missed time to jump or took the wrong direction or or I didn't understand how an environmental element would impact or impede Madeline's motion. And I, I really like how there's so much optional content in there, so you can sort of tailor the level of challenge on the fly as you're playing. So if you want to go f- the extra mile for the strawberries for all the brags, go for it. Uh, likewise, if you're not in the mood, you can just not bother. And even the story, which is really good, even though it's there, you can just easily not engage with it and treat it as just a challenging platformer, and it straddles those two lines very well. So, yeah, if you didn't have an interest in that because you, th- you thought it was too difficult, I recommend you give it a try. Uh, and Ginny, how did you get on with your Lost Fear? Um, not incredibly great. Um, I got really busy during the week, and then Owlboy and then Bayonetta came out. So I sort of thought, um, after hearing... A couple more people talk about the issues with the pacing of Lost Sphere towards the end. Um, I definitely felt a little less motivated to push through it when I had these other two games on the horizon that I really wanted to play. Um, Don't get me wrong, I am going to finish it. um, But I think it's just sort of... I sort of hit the point whereby there's all this other great stuff out now that is really, really grabbing me. So I think I'm going to shelve it probably for the next week or so. But I'll come back to it. Um, Lost Fear does definitely feel, um, to me at least now, at like the 30 hour or so mark, it just feels like they just tried to make I Am Sitsuna more populated and more, I guess, un- intense and just sort of do more with it. Um, and I don't know if that really works for the game. I think I Am Sitsuna was, felt more refined despite being so sparse. But I will update everyone again when I finish it, um, and I suspect I'll probably have a lot of the similar, a lot of the same complaints that Andy and some of my other friends have had about the ending. Because a JRPG to me is really all about the story, so I'm a little bit sad that it does not wrap that up very well. But I digress. I will still play it and give it a good go because I think it's still a good JRPG, but it definitely has not sort of punched me in the brain the way I Am Sitsuna did when I first started playing it. Yeah, it's got one hell of a tail off towards the end, but yeah. Anyway, so uh, let's move on to the latest Switch news. Okay, first up it seems uh, Capcom have had to explain the absence of Monster Hunter World on the Switch, which, if you look at Monster Hunter World, I think it's kind of obvious as to why it hasn't made it over. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but we've got here a note about port begging in general. Uh, do we think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I think there's good ways you can do it, and there's bad ways you can do it. Like, what prompted this discussion in the first place was, I saw, I think Polygon had done a report on Capcom quote-unquote finally addressing why monster hunter world wasn't on switch when if you look at monster hunter world it's pretty apparent why it wasn't on switch because a game of that size and of that graphical fidelity 
has been in production for years and years and years, probably before Capcom even knew the Switch existed, just for starters. And moving on from that, I don't think the Switch could run Monster Hunter World in the first place, no matter how much wizardry of the style of the Doom port they've done. So people obnoxiously asking for the port is ridiculous. And what I said was... I sympathize with Capcom here because it's ridiculous people are asking for this in the first place, but they also could have headed this off at the pass if they had ported Double Cross outside of Japan, so that way there would be a Monster Hunter game on Switch, and somebody, I won't say who, kind of got on my case about port begging, which we have the hashtag on the show, hashtag port all the games, and... I don't think we're being very obnoxious about it just in our community, but I, I'm sure I've seen it happen. Like uh, my friend on Twitter, Ryan Brown, who is uh, a UK games writer, whenever he mentions a new game is coming out that he has nothing to do with, he's just reporting that there's a game been announced. He gets people in his mention asking when the Switch port is coming out. It's like, he has nothing to do with that. <laughs> he has no control over that. So I, I just... I think it's okay to ask for ports. I think it's okay to let publishers and developers know that you want ports to happen, as I frequently remind 2K, I would like a Borderlands 2 port on Switch, please. <laughs> but I think there are constructive ways you can do it, and not everybody is being constructive about it. I mean, your constructive way has been that you've done the box art for them already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took me all of five minutes to make that. <laughs> Um, next up we have the news that Darkest Dungeon has had a patch to fix the Crimson Court issues uh, have you had a chance to try that Andrew or is that just on the back burner for now? I am so deep into my my game that doesn't have Crimson Courtyard activated that I'm just I'm going to wait until I do a replay on a harder difficulty to turn the Crimson Courtyard on but if that turned you away from the game at all, that game-breaking bug at release, or if you are just interested in trying the Crimson Courtyard, it is now viable. Just keep in mind that what the Crimson Courtyard does is it adds more pressure onto your game file. So it adds a soft time limit. And what a soft time limit is, is something that doesn't automatically end your game. But when it hits it, it makes your game much, much harder to do, almost to the point where it's basically impossible. That's the difference between a soft and a hard time limit. And if you don't want to deal with that soft time limit, just continue to leave it off. Cool. I think I'll do that when I finally get to it. Um, and lastly, we have uh, Petite Computer and Smile Basic is coming to the Switch, allowing people to do some coding. I think this is already on 3DS, but that that would be a cool little addition to the Switch, I think. Yeah, that looks really nice. Um, I don't know anything really about it but it looks kind of like i guess rpg maker um for games like this i guess like 3ds games um i mean i guess it really depends on on the scope of the game that can be made but regardless it's really cool and i think seeing seeing stuff like this and stuff like what the nintendo labo is going to be capable of makes me really quite excited actually for what is being offered on the switch in terms of creative outlets uh for people so not just games but obviously ways to make your own game and ways to make your own entertainment so i think with this and nintendo labo i think they're really on the right track going forward for software like this 
Yeah, I don't know much about this software. Uh, one of our listeners, Craigity Craig, is a big fan. He could probably tell us more about it, but uh, it sounds like you can program, like you're literally programming things. Uh, so you need to know the language that it works in. Uh, but you can make basic platformers and shooters with it, and I guess RPGs. It's kind of cool that software like this is coming to the Switch. And uh, hopefully there's a good portal set up so people can share the things they make. Yeah, I think that's really important for like the uh, longevity of something like this. Okay, so let's uh, head on now to the new releases. Okay, so first up we're going to talk about Fe or Fe or <laughs> Fe, however you want to pronounce it. I think it's uh, I think it's Fe, right? It sounds like it should be Fe just because of the premise of the game and the. It sounds like a, it looks like a Fe. Yeah, he's like a weird lizard wolf thing. Well, I, I read he's not a Fe. I read on the page description it's based on a Celtic forest, or am I imagining that? But anyway, the Fae oh. is a thing in Celtic mythology, so maybe that's what it's referring to. Okay, well, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it's apparently pronounced Fia. Fia, okay. Okay. Uh, that's weird. <laughs> like the car. Trust, trust me that. on this. It's Wikipedia. It's got to be correct, right? Oh, <laughs> I, I refuse to call it that because it's stupid. Um... <laughs> So, uh, I think I'm the only one that's played it. I believe, Andrew, you've bought it, but you haven't had time yet. Uh, yeah, I will play it this week. <laughs> okay, cool. So, I, I, I'll only do a, a top-level overview. So, in pre-release previews, I've seen people liken it to like a, a Zelda-slash-Metroid crossover thing, but that's really way off the mark. Uh, I'd put it more in the realm of uh, Journey and Abzu, but with more puzzly elements and more player agency, just generally speaking. The visuals obviously evoke memories of those games too, so that might be part of the vibe that I'm getting with it. But uh, basically the the mechanics revolve around uh, singing to creatures and wildlife to get them to assist or attack for you. Uh, So your character has no attacks themselves, you can't jump on things, you can't punch things, you can only communicate. Uh, And basically you're trying to repel these one-eyed creatures that are trying to capture or kill the wildlife. It's not been fully revealed yet, it just keeps drip-feeding that stuff to me. And it's it's really cool. I'm really enjoying it so far. Uh, the music is absolutely fantastic. The visuals are stunning. They keep surprising me in terms of the scale of what it's showing you. Um, when you're trying to communicate with the wildlife, there's some really cool effects. Like when you're communicating with one creature, the, the world sort of fades out. And it's just you two. Like I said, it's just capturing this little moment in time of the communication between these two creatures, which is really awesome. Uh, there are a couple of niggles, so you know when you play a PC game that's not been optimized for a pad, and you mm-hmm. try and play it with a pad, and it feels really loose and a bit fidgety? It's a bit like that. It's got that sort of feel to it. So it's, it feels a bit um, undercooked compared, you know, when you're coming off the back of like Mario Odyssey or even a 2D platformer like Celeste, it just doesn't have that same responsiveness which is a shame. Um, now I'm not sure how long it is. Like uh, I asked on Twitter, and someone said it's about it's a couple of hours, but I'm already at the couple of hours mark, and I think there's quite a bit left to go. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'm gonna try and uh, get this out before I carry on with uh, Bayonetta, which we're gonna talk about soon. Uh, next up, we've got Owlboy. Ginny, you've been playing this one. 
Yeah, so uh, either of you guys going to get Owlboy or play Owlboy or have played Owlboy? Fresh from being all boyed up from Celeste, I thought I would take the risk <laughs> oh, and bought it. But it's it's on, on the uh, backlog for the time being until the Bayonetta games are out of the way. Uh, Andrew, did you get it? I'm waiting for the physical version to come out in May. Of course. Uh, <laughs> well, in that case, I guess I will also give a little bit, I guess, more of a, a, a surface level reading of Owlboy, just because... Um, I think the story so far has been really cool and a little bit special. But basically, in Owlboy, you play an owl boy. <laughs> I know, it's not <laughs> rocket science. You literally play a boy owl. So, <laughs> um, ba- basically, uh, long story short, you are a, a small owl child um, and your character is mute. So... Um, you can probably see where this is going. You are basically the one child in the village who gets bullied pretty much constantly by everyone and belittled by everyone. And everyone basically takes a huge crap on you all the time because you're mute and they make fun of you, which is awful. Um, but it really sort of establishes you very early on as the underdog character, probably the most underdoggiest of all underdog characters just because people are constantly on your case about how useless you are. Um, but as you can predict, you have a, you have an encounter with uh, a special entity um, and you are tasked with basically saving your world. So like every anime out there, um, you go through <laughs> extreme hardship um, and push past your shortcomings with the power of friendship. And I mean this quite literally because... As Owlboy, you are incredibly horrific at combat. You couldn't even fight a paper bag successfully. Um, so what you do is you have friends, and your friends have guns. And your friends that have guns will help you fight things. So this is a game that is literally about defeating evil with the power of friendship, because you carry your friends around um, using the power of flight, and they shoot things for you, and they protect you. So the core, I guess, gameplay combat mechanic is alternating between stunning enemies momentarily by hitting them with your wings in owl form, picking your mates up, and then having them go berserk on the enemies with a shotgun or some sort of ammunition of your choice. So um, in terms of the gameplay and the story, it sounds a bit like a crazy anime because it is um, a little bit. And I have heard some things about about the plotline, which also will encourage that comparison in the future. Um, I will note this game was 10 years in the making when it did come out. Um, so it definitely is a labor of love and it feels that way. It looks incredibly beautiful. Um, the music is also stunning. Um, the way that the characters react to each other feels very organic. Like the main character often cowers in fear or looks surprised and the exaggerated visual style really really makes it i think everything is is 2d but the graphics really really pop um in a good way not in like a texture pop in way um but just to i guess sum up how i feel about it in terms of whether or not it's a good switch port or a good switch game there are a little bit um there are some hiccups in terms of a little bit of input lag when you're fighting and there's lots of stuff on the screen at the same time. Um, 
and my one gripe is that the controls really do not feel very intuitive. So for some context, you have a button that you have to press to fly, um, and you have a button that you have to press to get your companion to shoot things, and a bu- another button that you press to do things aerially. So those are the trigger buttons, and the aerial action buttons are the Y buttons. And having one trigger button for shooting and one trigger button for ex- uh, so executing these aerial maneuvers can get a little bit confusing just in the jump because you need to use both um both the both the the dual sticks to actually control the trajectory of what you're aiming at so you're moving with one you're kind of controlling your f- your fire rate and your fire direction with the other and sort of toggling these two triggers it can get a bit much in boss fights and when timing is important and crucial it can be pretty much deadly um just because the aiming system kind of like near near automata um it's kind of like that same sort of style but it doesn't really feel as good to play and on the joy con continuously holding down if you're playing it i guess in handheld mode continuously holding down those trigger buttons and those dual sticks can get a bit painful i mean i got a hand cramp trying to do a couple of the boss fights but I guess if you're not playing in portable mode, that will, might not be as big of a problem for you. But if you are wanting to play Owlboy on the bus, do keep that in mind that constantly having to have your fingers on the triggers and Y, X, A, and B, and the dual sticks will get a little bit frustrating. Um, otherwise, it's a really charming game. It's got a lot of heart, and it is not difficult. I wouldn't call it difficult at all. I think it's like a, a good difficulty, but it's a difficulty that allows you to enjoy the story more than the combat i think the strength of this game is definitely in the story and in the beautiful environments and less so about gunning your way through every boss fight even though that really is what combat is like so if you like a cute game um well really a beautiful game with a meaningful story that is i kid you not about the power of friendship and gunpowder um, then you should definitely pick up Owlboy. It is a great platformer. It's got rave reviews on its previous iterations, and I think it deserves pretty much all of them. My favourite bit of that was the whole emphasis on the power of friendship and guns. <laughs> That's what this game is, so if that appeals to you, check it out. Next up we have uh, Portal Knights, which Andrew has been playing because he's recently been a bit obsessed with voxel-based RPGs. Why didn't you tell us about this one, Andrew? I'm not obsessed. This was a timing thing. Uh, <laughs> Dragon Quest Builders came out on sure. last Friday, and Portal Knights came out, the physical version came out on Tuesday. That is it. <laughs> but um, if, if you put Minecraft and Portal Knights and Dragon Quest Builders on a spectrum, uh, I think... Minecraft would be on the far left is like the pure sandbox game where all you really do is build things. Dragon Quest Builders is in the middle where it's an RPG, but you are asked to construct certain things. Uh, And all the way, the furthest away from Minecraft is Portal Knights because it is a voxel builder game. But from what I've played of it, I wouldn't actually want to build anything in this game uh, (laughs) because it's played mostly in third person. Uh, and Dragon Quest Builders nailed construction in third person. This game did not. Uh, It's difficult to place squares in specific places, and when you do place it, there's not that real tactile feedback that Dragon Quest Builders gives you. Uh, Minecraft doesn't have tactile feedback either, but they still make it feel 
right somehow. Uh, so you can build buildings in Portal Knights. I just don't know why you'd want to. Because all the environments you go to, it's already full of structures and buildings that have holes in them, which you could patch up if you want to. But I have not felt inclined or have felt it's necessary to do that. Because what Portal Knights is, is really taking those construction concepts of Minecraft and actually applying it to your character. Because in Minecraft, you dig up different levels of metal and you use it to build different tiers of weapons and armor to help you compete better. This really expands on that idea, turns it into a full-blown action RPG where I had to build a specific item to access the basic tiers, but then once I built that, then I can actually build a custom construction set just for the class that I picked, which was Ranger, and there's also Warriors and Mages that you can play at, and that crafting table can be upgraded even further to provide access to a whole range of different weapons and items. So I think if you like Minecraft and you like action RPGs, uh, I guess Skyrim would be the closest, although the game actually plays most like Ocarina of Time uh, in terms of the way you interact with enemies and fight them. Uh, if that sounds appealing to you, I think you would get a kick out of Portal Knights, and it's divided up into 49 different islands, and each island is procedurally generated, so every time that you make a new world, you actually get all new things to explore, whereas in Dragon Quest Builders, it's all prefab, so once you've seen something, you've seen it all the times so you're going to see it. And if you explore each island, then you find fragments of portal blocks which you need to use to unlock the portal that leads to the next island and there's actually different paths you can take to get through the islands so there's a bit of exploration and adventuring you have to do it makes it feel much more rewarding to actually explore the world whereas in minecraft you can kind of stay in the same localized area and do everything that you would be able to do otherwise so there's definite more emphasis on going as far as you possibly can to seeing what is there and another cool thing it does is there's actually a lot of great online interaction in this. There's It's fully multiplayer. You can match up with your friends or with random people to just play the game and see how far you can get. And there's also seasonal events that open up temporary portals to temporary islands. There's one running right now for Lunar New Year. Uh, I played through it and I unlocked a bunch of new things I can make, which are probably timed to this event. And if I made a new character I wouldn't have access to those things anymore so there's lots of rewards for sticking with one character and playing consistently and once I completed that whole chain of events I actually unlocked from what the game explains I've permanently unlocked a new island where I can actually go and I can get the resources to make these things whenever I need to which are otherwise only available during the seasonal event so I think if you're looking for an interesting action RPG that has a lot of emphasis on making your own equipment, and if you want to deal with a not great construction system, you can also make your own house or make your own town or make your own whatever you want, that is also there too. Next up is Zeo Drifter, which uh, is just being released on Switch. Andrew, you played this on PlayStation? Yeah, I played it on PlayStation Network. Uh, it's kind of like blaster master or metroid um 
it doesn't have much emphasis on exploration. Like, it is a Metroid game where you need to get certain abilities to advance to certain areas, but most of the upgrades you get are actually for your weapons, so it plays a lot of, like, Blaster Master in that regard. Uh, and you just try to get through the four different planets as fast as you can, and you fight off the aliens, you get all the junk. There's upgrades hidden along the paths, but there's not really a whole lot to explore as far as what you expect from a Metroid game. So it's basically Metroid Light. If you're looking for a Metroid game, you enjoy that style of exploration and platforming, and you're looking for one you can blow through in a single night, I think this would be a good choice for you. It's only 10 bucks. Okay, that might be worth a look then. Uh, and lastly is the big one, the one we've all been excited for, Bayonetta yes. 1 and 2 Switch on Friday. Um, now... I remember my first experience with Bayonetta very, very vividly. Uh, that year, I had started a, an independent video game website. This is myjoystick.com, and it was kind of still around the era where it seemed possible that a small site could make something of itself if everyone pulled in the same direction, and it was going really well at that point. The site had been reviewed in Web User Magazine and The Guardian, positive, both positively. Hits were rolling in, and we'd just been invited to attend two big industry events in the UK. First up was the Golden Joystick Awards, which was awesome, uh, and the second one was the Eurogamer Expo, which was being held in Leeds that year, uh, and it was there when I found a completely deserted demo booth for Bayonetta. Oof. Now, whatever you want to call this type of game, hack and slash or stylish action game, whatever, like, this type of game was not my thing. Uh, I, I experienced the Devil May Cry series on and off, I hated similar games of its ilk, like God of War, which actually, in fact, that was at God of War Three was at the expo, uh, as was Dante's Inferno by EA, which was like a shallow equivalent, really. Uh, but f- for some reason, this just grabbed me instantly because it was just so fresh, random, and inventive. So the the demo booth, there was no instructions, there was no button mapping guide or anything so I just started hitting buttons and then amazing things happened uh, Bayonetta shot bullets from hands and feet she hacked and slashed periodically a giant hand made out of her hair would appear out of a portal and punch the guys suddenly an Iron Maiden would appear and crush them in it I was baffled but it was just so much fun and the combat was so tight that I was just completely enamoured with it and I pre-ordered it that very night at the time, a friend of mine dismissed it as Devil May Cry with boobs, which is, you know, not oh, completely unfair. It is completely unfair. But it doesn't mean that it's not any less awesome. And plus, I, I figure it's the same game director. No one should be surprised when someone creates a game that's similar to their previously really popular game. Uh, and I distinctly remember thinking at the time how it was what people that didn't play games thought that all games looked like. <laughs> um, but regardless, I was absolutely hyped for it and played it day one and I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was a game that changed my opinion on an entire genre. I rank both these games in my top ten of all time and that's without taking into account the discussions about her as a feminist icon or not, as some people believe. And and despite replaying it several times over the years and its sequel once, that hype has never really left me. Like even now, I'm playing it on Switch and I'm grinning like an idiot. It's so good, I cannot believe how well it still holds up. Ah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ginny, you've been playing it. How are you finding it? 
Um, well, I think anyone that follows me on Twitter will realize that I have documented my affection for the Bayonetta series very thoroughly um, over a series of many, many tweets. Um, and so it's probably no surprise that my opinion of Bayonetta is ridiculously positive, I guess. Maybe not ridiculously, because I think the game is objectively a great game. Um, but I think if for people that have not played Bayonetta in the past um, and have always wondered what it's about and been curious about the fact that um, there's an essentially someone such that essentially a naked woman is fighting stuff with her hair, um, please just bite the bullet and buy it this time. Um, it is it is amazing. I think everything from the combat to the cheesy dialogue to Bayonetta, to the characters, to the contained narrative that makes sense and is engaging enough as a combat side piece. It's just a good game. Um, I played Bayonetta initially when I was very young and probably didn't have any appreciation for the aesthetics, really, and didn't really care at all about what was going on in the plot. Um, And revisiting the game as an adult who is now sentient and capable of critical thought... Um, it still holds up. So just like Andy, I'm very pleased that Bayonetta has come to the Switch. And in particular, very, very pleased with Bayonetta 2 um, as the game that I remember most vividly from my childhood. Re- revisiting the game now, it's just better. It's just a great experience, I think. It has lost none of its original luster. Um, and being poor to Switch, it hasn't had any, I guess, additional bells and whistles that detract from the overall experience. So, um, I don't know. How do you feel about this one, Andrew? Well, I've already gone on record on this podcast as uh, being frustrated with the way women's sexuality is often handled in video games. And I said that if there was a good example of a woman's sexuality enhancing her power and uh, being kind of basically the core of her character, it was Bayonetta. And there's a long and ongoing and complicated conversation about this topic, which uh, this is not the right venue for, but it's out there. So if you're interested, I do recommend you look it up and make sure you listen to both sides of the feminist argument going on here, because there are different things to say about the issue of consent involving the Bayonetta character and the way she is portrayed. I have not played Bayonetta 2 yet. I played Bayonetta 1 after Bayonetta 2 came out on 360, and I do like the gameplay. It's very cool how it's built around a dodge mechanic, and Bayonetta is a bullet witch, so if she can dodge successfully with, like, almost pixel perfect timing she'll actually slow down time and let her get in a lot of free attacks on her enemies which is basically the entire game uh and it's a lot more engaging than i'm making it sound uh i I love that mechanic but i was not in love with bayonetta one as a game it the plot is an amnesia plot which come on it's even when that game came out come on uh (laughs) with like an unbelievably obvious twist and 
there's a supporting character who is a reporter who we never see do any reporting, so we just have to take their word for it. And he's basically stalking Bayonetta throughout the entire game. I had no interest or sympathy with this character whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> but without spoiling it, though, he he has a reason for following us. Yeah, and I I, I think his his journalistic background is more of a cover to assist him in stalking her. If so, <laughs> sure comes out at some point. They didn't make that clear in the plot, but anyway. Uh, Visually, it's brilliant. Uh, it, Bayonetta is a good counterpart to Dante of Devil May Cry because Dante deals with devils, uh, and he's an agent of both humanity and heaven. And Bayonetta deals with angels and is an agent of both hell and humans. So there's an interesting contrast there. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun to play. It's got some great mechanics in it. Just the first one I was not wild about the story or most of the characters so it didn't draw me in bayonetta 2 on the other hand everything i've heard about it sounds great it's set at christmas just just for fun for this first part uh it starts off with bayonetta having her christmas shopping interrupted by an angel attack which is brilliant uh and it also builds on a relationship from bayonetta 1 which was could have been a good relationship but they squandered how they explored it but that relationship is now the core of Bayonetta 2. I'm really excited to see how they develop it and where they go with it. So I'm going to play that this week, and I'm sure we'll all have more things to say about it next week. Um, one thing that I really love about it that I hadn't picked up on the first time that I played through it, but I did on the Wii U, was how uh, flexible the combat system is. So you can keep buying new weapons and upgrades for, for Bayonetta. Uh, you can upgrade her shoe guns to shotguns, you can give her a katana, and then you can switch between these two different um, fighting styles on the fly. I think that's that's really cool. Yeah, I really like how the, the upgrade system works in Bayonetta in terms of, of the combat, and I also like how you basically have to have to visit what is essentially um, a, a jazz bar um, <laughs> to get all your bootleg weapons. So I think everything about, I guess, the setting of Bayonetta when it comes to not only the worlds themselves, which are really incredible set pieces, by the way. Like, I'm sure everyone by now has seen the trailer of Bayonetta fighting on top of a subway train or on an aeroplane and just having all these huge things just completely destroy the environment and look incredibly lethal. And just Bayonetta's combat in general i think meshes really well with these really flashy set pieces because it's so dancer like just everything about the game and the way that it's set i think is clearly created and has been conceived of in a way that highlights bayonetta's strengths whether that's her aesthetic strengths or her combat strengths every single place that you fight in just feels completely tailored to showing off what bayonetta can do so really, this is a, a game, I think, that really, really centers its protagonist in a way that a lot of games actually don't do. Um, I think in Bayonetta, you feel less like you're thrown into the game and just having to, to, to save the world for some unknown reason than you're being pushed around by some unknown force. I think in Bayonetta, in combat, and just in general, I suppose, the way that the environment and the camera is framed, you feel very, very firmly in control. And I think that is where I fall on the feminist side of the argument. I love that the game is centered so clearly on Bayonetta 
and, and that she really is the focus and the driving force and that gives her the most power and the most agency I think so that's what I love about Bayonetta 2 especially is how it explores relationships between women and the power that that has and just the fact that you can really be this powerful witch if you want to be and nothing is going to stop you <laughs> um, yeah I love her attitude in everything because she's just like so in control like there's there's a bit I just got to and another character throws a motorcycle at her and she just mm. sidesteps it nonchalantly and looks to the side as if like what mm. um and I the, there's something I love about the structure where how every time it introduces like a, a large enemy it does it as a boss fight mm. and then and then they appear later as normal enemies and they just keep building up this repertoire of of uh, bad guys to fight in that in that manner that's that's really awesome and and some of the scale as well like there's um a point in the first one where this large dragon head comes through a doorway and is snapping at you and that's that's like a mini boss fight and then suddenly the camera pulls back and it shows you that you've actually been fighting in the air as the dragons lifted the room off the building <laughs> which is is just it's it's brilliant uh, and i'm absolutely loving seeing newcomers to the series on twitter just sort of falling in love with the madness of it all it's so good seriously yeah i think my favorite part is just people kind of going ballistic about the way that the angels are designed like obviously traditionally angels are always portrayed you know wings humanoid you know often weirdly attractive for some reason but i like the way that the seraphim look like i guess the traditional conception of them which is i think what like a million eyes and screaming mouths and just they look ridiculous and they look incredibly alien and terrifying and i really enjoy the aesthetic and i think people that are new to the game might not have expected that coming into it when they thought okay hell you know demons angels you know horn beings and then guys with wings but i think it really sort of flips that traditional conception of angelic um, aesthetics on its head and that's one of the other appeals i think bayonetta has is what it does with that concept yeah actually i remember the first time i played it i, I probably didn't even take in that she was fighting angels and then when i played it second time it was like oh okay this is this is cool yeah um but yeah so absolutely great game i i think everyone should buy it especially in because it's in a double pack completely worth experiencing okay folks so what are we playing over the coming week i think it's obvious for for all of us, at least one yeah. of them, anyway. Well, I am going to try to do Fe, or excuse me, what was it, Fia? Mm-hmm, Fia. Okay. I'm going to try to do a Fia in between Bayonetta 1 and 2, and there's actually two games coming out on the eShop this week I'm interested in. There's Joe Daver's Lone Wolf, which looks like an interesting hybrid between an adventure game and an action RPG. It's not entirely clear from the store page how that's going to work, but it looks really cool. So I'm going to try it. And there's also a new narrative game out called Old Man's Journey that I'm interested in trying. Yeah, Lone Wolf looks really interesting. It looks like it's based on a, a real game book. Um, I can't justify buying it yet. Um, for me, I'm going to get through Faye first. That's how I'm pronouncing it. Um, I'm going to play Bayonetta then I'm going to go to Night in the Woods, and then I'm going to play Bayonetta 2. That's not going to happen in one week, but I'm going to get through that, that structure. Slacker! That, that <laughs> schedule as quickly as I can. Uh, what about you, Ginny? 
I am definitely going to be playing the Bayonetta's, um, the Bayonetta collection. Um, I'm going to aim to finish Owlboy, and I'm also going to crack back into Dragon Quest Builders. I kind of feel like having that free build mode would be nice in my downtime between slashing through hordes and hordes of angels. So yeah, I'll try and crack through that one, because I was really into it when it first came out, but sort of has died off a bit. And then if I have time for it, definitely Lost Sphere. I just kind of want to get to the end. I just want to take it off my list and say that I've played it so I can share my opinions with people about the ending. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to get us noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. And we also have a YouTube channel where Andrew and Andy will upload the first hour of many of the games that we play and talk about on the podcast. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. And if you want to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee, and we'll have the details on our website. Um, thanks so much. You can also follow us individually. So Andy is at Flame Roast Toast, Andrew is at Play Critically, and he also live streams the games that we talk about at twitch.tv slash playcritically. And I'm Ginny at Ginny Woes. Um, we also have a Discord that we talk to our listeners in, um, and we love hearing everyone's thoughts about our episodes and also the games that we're all playing together. So we'll leave a link to that in the show notes, but please come by and check it out. We love to hang out with you. Yeah.